2 Corinthians chapter number 4 this morning. I have to confess to you that I had done a lot of preparation and study and had began writing uh, uh, to continue preaching this morning on Galatians, but for whatever reason, I guess God had other plans. Uh, He put this particular passage on my heart so much so that I could not uh, escape uh, preaching on it, I guess. Um, And so that's where we are here. We're here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, a passage that has so much to say to us right here, right now, here this morning. And I especially think it's, in, it's pertinent how Paul uh, begins this particular chapter. As you might know, as we've talked about before, 2 Corinthians, and for whatever reason, I keep coming back to this letter uh, at one time or another. And I think it's because Paul gets so personal with this particular letter. As you might know, this is roughly probably about the fourth letter that he wrote to the Corinthian church. There's two others that we don't have in scriptures and that are lost to history. But uh, by all accounts, he wrote four letters to this dear church who seem to always be going through some sort of scandal, some sort of trouble, some sort of uh, uh, bout with uh, either uh, falsehood, false teaching, or even uh, bouts of disagreement with Paul himself. And here, in 2 Corinthians, he's writing very personally. Paul, as you might know, and as we'll get to, he's been slandered and attacked. He's been maligned uh, by this church as they've been influenced by who Paul calls the super apostles. And so he gets somewhat personal here because Paul is writing not just to defend or clear his name, but... He writes in order to show that the clarity of the gospel is what is most important. And that phrase that appears, it appears twice actually. There's a phrase that he uses to sort of reorient not just himself but everyone with him. As he says in verse number one, notice. Therefore, he says, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. And you'll notice it appears again in that passage that we read During our scripture reading, verse number 16, he repeats himself, so we do not lose heart. The we, of course, is inclusive of all of Paul's companions in ministry. He wasn't just a lone wolf going to preaching to all these churches. Of course, he had many traveling companions with him. In this case, specifically, he's referring to Timothy who was with him, ministering to this church. And so these words are meant to speak, not just for Paul, but for everyone in his entourage, so to speak, as he's reiterating the fact that contrary to what you might have believed, as he's talking to the Corinthians, contrary to what they might have thought, they they haven't lost their nerve. They haven't grown weary to the point of, of giving up in this, in this mission that they've been given to minister for the sake of the gospel. And I find this to be a very sort of intriguing sort of confession or remark on Paul's behalf. Because as I understand it, by saying that they haven't lost lost heart, by saying that they haven't given up yet, it's sort of almost, he's almost admitting the fact that they might have had good reason to do so. So contrary to what was uh, perhaps what any other person might have done, they're, they're doing the opposite. And of course, if you recall what Paul talks about throughout the rest of this letter, as we've noted, it would have been understandable. 
If he had lost his nerve, if he had lost his heart, if he had just thrown in the towel and called it a day. He alludes to this in chapter number 1. You might have that open, but flip there. Chapter 1, look at verse 8. As he's introducing and getting into this letter, notice what he confesses. 2 Corinthians 1, 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers. I don't want you to have any misconceptions about the affliction that we experience in Asia. For notice what he says. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. What a confession. You want to talk about a man who was on the ropes, so to speak. You want to talk about a man who was preaching the gospel, but he was in a state, a state not only physically, but emotionally and spiritually, in every single which way you can imagine, a state of being at his wit's end. This is Paul. We're despairing of life itself. There was ample reason for Paul to grow weary, to grow faint-hearted, to surrender to all of that as well. But, of course, as he says here in chapter 4, he didn't. And I think it begs us to ask why. After Paul, after everything that Paul had seen, everything that Paul had endured as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have to ask, what kept him in ministry? What kept him going? What kept him from giving up? What kept him from losing heart? In many ways, that's exactly what 2 Corinthians, and specifically I would say chapter number 4, is meant to answer. It answers some of those questions. And I think it's incumbent upon us here this morning to ask the same questions of ourselves. Perhaps we have not been pushed to that type of brink as Paul was. Perhaps we haven't been to a point where we've despaired of life itself, or maybe you have. But we can ask the same question. We are all part of the faith here, Lord willing you are what keeps you going what's preventing you from from giving up what picks you up when you feel like you've been knocked down while trying to trying your hardest to live this thing called the life of faith what what do you do where do you go where do you turn to when it feels like you're you're up against the ropes When it feels like as if you're just weathering body blow after body blow, setback after setback, and defeat after defeat. And what do you do, even more pointedly, when some of those body blows feel as if they're coming from those within the church itself? What do you do? How do you not lose heart? That's precisely the circumstances that Paul finds himself in as he's writing these words. These words come from a place of great stress and great difficulty and severe exhaustion. And yet, despite all of that, as he says, we do not lose heart. Why? How? Again, by all accounts, he should have given up. If you were to observe Paul's track record during these days, you might have thought, like those in Corinth thought, or were made to believe, that because of all of the the things, all of the obstacles that were coming up in Paul's life, that he must be under the judgment of God. 
That's what these so-called super apostles had led many of the Corinthians to believe. That because of all these setbacks, because of all these delays, because Paul seems to be wishy-washy, he's changing in mind. Look at all the suffering that is peppering Paul's life. He, he can't be a true minister of the gospel. Look at how, uh, how much mud and sludge he's had to trudge through. On top of all that, again, he was being smeared by this church with many still questioning his authority, questioning the gospel that he was, uh, that he was preaching. He endured all kinds of hardship from, from riots and death threats and beatings. And he goes on to say at the end of this letter uh, in chapter number 11 that that was just the tip of the iceberg. Actually, go with me. Uh, flip over a couple pages to chapter 11. You, you might be familiar with this, but listen to what Paul says that we've been through. And he's not doing this in order to garner some sort of pity. He's being honest with what he has received for the sake of this, this ministry that he's been given. Notice what he says in verse number 23 of chapter 11. He's endured imprisonments. Countless beatings, often near death, he says, verse 24, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. This is Paul's return on investment, so to speak, for saying, I, uh, for, for giving and surrendering himself to the ministry of the gospel. And you might, uh, by all uh, sort of outward appearances... He's getting a bad return on his investment. <laughs> He's being pushed to the point of near death. His career, Paul's career as a pastor and, and as a, ministry, a missionary, is just mired in conflict. Not because Paul was, you know, a rabble rouser. Not because he he liked to stir up trouble, but because. This is sort of the byproduct when you preach the gospel. Especially to those who don't want to hear it. They get all offended. (laughs) These are the byproducts of preaching wholeheartedly. As Paul says in the first letter. uh, That I decided to know nothing among you except Christ crucified. The Lord of all pegged to a Roman cross and resurrected again. That's our hope. That's our salvation. That's our life. This is what happens. When those who've been given over to unbelief resist that gospel. His, all of his suffering was downstream of that. Down, it was all downstream of what he preached. Which, of course, you know, any sensible person might take a step back and be like, uh, okay, if, if what I'm preaching... Is putting my life and the lives of those who are with me in jeopardy. If my message is resulting in near-death experience after near-death experience, maybe I should alter what I'm preaching. <laughs> you know, causation equals correlation. Maybe there's something here that I can fix. <laughs> but not Paul. He refused to entertain even the slightest 
notion that this message that he had been given by God was up for alteration, was up for being adjusted or amended in any way. Go back to 2 Corinthians 4. This is exactly what he says. Notice verses 1 and 2. Therefore, he says, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. You can notice exactly what he's trying to get across. That, yes, there's others. There's many others around us. There's those who, or perhaps they were familiar with, or perhaps they were being slandered by. But he, he, he references them. They were, they were surrendering to the pressure to preach something different. They were tampering with God's word. They were being slightly underhanded with the scriptures. So much so that they started to distort its message. And they began to... Say something different than the message of the true Christian gospel. Paul, of course, had zero patience for these individuals who would choose to do something. Because God's word should never and can never be edited. That's essentially what that word tamper means. They were editing the word of God. And you can see what, as he declares that this, this word that he was called to preach, it wasn't his It was given to him. It's a gift that, as he says, verse 1, that he received by the mercy of God. Therefore, it wasn't his to edit. It wasn't his to tamper with. It wasn't his to change. He preached the word. Remember what he says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4? What is one of the final charges he gives to his disciple? Preach the word. So long as it accords with what people want to hear. Preach the word and and make it sound nice. No. Preach the word in season and out. Basically, he's telling Timothy there to stick to your guns. And how could he say that? Because this is Paul. Through all of the the noise, through all of the, the hardship and the conflict, what was Paul doing? Sticking and believing and trusting in what God's word said above anything else. He was fully convinced of this truth. Which again is why he preached it so openly and so boldly. That's what he means there in, chapter, in, in verse 2 of the same chapter where he says, By the open statement of the truth. He's being very open and public with what his gospel is. I think it's because he, he also knew, Paul did, that his, his ultimate audience, so to speak, the, the, it wasn't the Corinthians, or it wasn't any other human congregation, so to speak. Paul's ultimate audience was God himself. That's what he says, that he carries out his, his ministry, as he says in verse 2, in the sight of God. That's who he answers to. He doesn't answer to the Corinthians or anyone else. And I think this is why. Even when his gospel, even when his message was being cast aside, when it was being refused or rejected, he could still rejoice. Why? Because the results of this message, the outcomes of this message and his preaching of it, they weren't up to him. They were up to God. Notice what he says, verse 3. 
And even if our gospel is veiled, even if it's shrouded, it is veiled and shrouded to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Notice what he says. Yeah, we're going to preach. And sometimes that preaching is going to fall on deaf ears and blinded hearts. They've been blinded by unbelief, by the influences of this world. But for us, that doesn't really matter. We're not going to change our message just to make it sound better. We don't preach ourselves. We don't preach to prop ourselves up. We minister the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the image of God. Notice he says we stick to that. Paul wasn't one to. To preach in order to garner men's applause. Or get some sort of acclaim for himself. He wasn't going to sort of take shortcuts. Or be dishonest. He wasn't going to treat the word of God fast and loose. And even though sometimes he didn't preach what was popular, he refused. As he says, we refuse to practice cunning. He resisted this urge to sort of placate to what his, what his audience might have wanted to hear. He, did, he, was gonna ref, he refused to tamper with this, this word of God that he had been given. Even, even when what that word says and when it's preached resulted in his own bodily harm. When he was injured because of it. Notice what he says, verse 8. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. (laughs) Even when he was injured for the sake of the gospel, he says, we're going to continue preaching that same thing. And what he alludes to here is what we noted back in chapter number 11. All of those blights and blemishes and bruises that were peppering Paul's body. That's what he's referring to here where he says that we're carrying in our bodies the death of Jesus. So you could imagine looking at Paul. And to look at him was almost to look at a walking reminder of what it cost to follow Jesus. Of what it cost to preach Jesus. And of what it cost to live for Jesus. His body was marked up from head to toe. It was scarred. You know, sometimes maybe you feel this way. And I, 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 I'm, a, I'm a young guy, but I have old knees. <laughs> so when I get up, sometimes the knees pop. and it's, You know when you get up and you make some noises when you get up? <laughs> That's Paul. But rather than wallow in all of the ways that his body has been abused because of This ministry that he had been given. What does he do? He revels. Notice what he does here in verses 10 through 12. He revels in the fact that his body and all of its marks and all of its scars and all of its bruises is itself a sermon. Notice what he says. Always carrying in in the body the death of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. 
When you look at me, he says, all you might see are the reminders of heartache and suffering and hardship. You're going to see scars. You're going to see bruises. But he says all of those marks are nothing but the divine reminders of the upside down logic of the gospel. Which says that life comes out of death and victory comes out of defeat. That's what Paul's body was. His mangled and mutilated flesh was, we could say, was a mosaic, as he says here, of the the manifested life of Jesus for others. And he was content with this. He was quite content with this role because he knew that this is what he was called to do. Go back to verse 5. Notice what he says. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. You know what, Paul, the the most famous preacher of this day, the most uh, famous missionary perhaps ever, one of the most successful church planters in the history of the world. You know what he saw and how he saw himself? He saw himself as a slave. As he says, a a servant for you, for Jesus' sake. He saw himself as a servant whose all of his labors and all of his efforts and all of his energies and all of his time, they were given over, not for his own benefit, but for the sake of the church, he says. It's for you that I do this and also for God's glory. Notice verse 15. Notice what he says. For it is all for your sake, he says. But perhaps more alarming than Calling himself a slave, as he does in verse 5, is, what, is when Paul says that he's nothing but a clay pot. You might be familiar with this. Notice verse number 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You're perhaps familiar with this illustration uh, of Paul's sort of self-image, how he saw himself. But I think it should strike us once again anew this morning. That he refers to himself as nothing but a jar made out of clay. Clay is that term that means cooked earth. And it's a reference to all of those very cheap, very common pieces of pottery that filled households in that day. And they would be used on a daily basis. Jars and pots and bowls and all kinds of vessels for all kinds of uses. But the point is that being made out of clay inherently means that they're fragile and that they're weak and that they're susceptible to cracking. Clay jars are replaceable commodities. They were easily exchanged Or swapped out. So when one cracked or broke into pieces, you could just replace it with another one. And that's that's what Paul says here. I'm similarly replaceable, he says. He didn't, Paul, this is so amazing to see into what Paul is here confessing. That he doesn't consider himself as some sort of indispensable component to the progress of the gospel. As if, as if he was somehow removed out of the situation, then what God's word says wouldn't keep advancing. As if everything depended on him. No, he says, I'm nothing but a jar of clay. And it doesn't matter. I don't matter. It's the contents that's what matters. It's the gospel that's what's matters. The treasure that's inside is what matters. 
He's not the point. Paul is saying, I'm not the point. Christ is. Jesus is. He's the point. And this was, of course, a sentiment that directly opposed all of his critics and all of his dissenters and what they were saying. Because again, while they were tampering with God's word and succumbing to preaching something different, what is happening? They're preaching out of self-interest. They're preaching things and preaching truth and sharing doctrine and trying to encourage people. But really, they were just advancing their own agendas. And so now we contrast that notion with what Paul is declaring here. That I am so committed for your sake and for the sake of God's glory. I'm so committed to, the, to preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. That I am ready and I am willing to go through torture for your sake. He didn't resort to editing his message. To protect his position. Or to safeguard his status as an apostle, nor was he about to compromise this gospel for for the sake of self-preservation. But what sustained him through all of these ups and these downs, these, these highs and these lows of life, was this firm hope he had in Jesus. Notice verse 13 again. Since we have... The same spirit of faith according to what has been written. I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. And bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake. So that as grace extends to more and more people. It may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. He references Psalm 116 verse 10 where the psalmist is declaring that that his, his abject confidence in the Lord despite the affliction and the adversity that surrounds him. And Paul is is saying that in the same way, uh, we have the same faith and therefore we can declare likewise that our belief in what God's word says and what God's word promises trumps everything else. And what does God's word say and promise? Namely, that the God who raised his son from the dead has also assured us to raise us from the dead and to bring us with him to glory. So you see, for Paul, it was this hope of the resurrection that was this ultimate sort of antidote, if you will, whenever his circumstances tempted him to despair or to lose heart. It was the gospel The good news that the Jesus who died couldn't be held by death. And in fact, by dying, Jesus put death to death. Notice what he says. Flip over one page, chapter 1, verse 8. Again, as he talks about being despaired, even of life itself, notice what fills him with hope. For we were so utterly burdened, verse 8, beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on the God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such deadly peril. And he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. What a testimony. This is what kept Paul from, from giving up and throwing in the towel. So that's why, that's why he can say, verse number 16, so we do not lose heart. 
Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. As we've seen and as we've noted, all of the visible signs said that Paul was wasting away. He was undergoing all kinds of conflict and hardship and heartache. And yet even still, he didn't surrender to despair. In fact, as he says here, that constantly, daily, I'm being renewed. And he could say this. He could say this because he cherished the cross above every other reality. You know when he says that I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified? That wasn't just a pithy statement. That wasn't just something that he liked to say because it sounded cool or because it it kind of sort of seemed subversive. No, he says this because the cross was his lens by which he understood everything else. And I would say the same is true for us. Looking through the lens of the cross, so to speak, freed Paul to see the pressures of the present as passing and light. While it also infused him with the hope to see that the the eternity was full of the glory and the weight of God's presence. And this brings to mind this, this ultimate paradox of our hope. Now, what is a paradox? A paradox is something that sounds absurd. Or contradictory, but is found to be true. And I think this helps us to understand the cross and why it was so important for Paul. Because after all, what's more, what's more absurd, what's more paradoxical than looking at an instrument, a device that was meant to inflict the worst form of torture humanly conceived. And look at that same instrument and regard it as the emblem of victory and life. That's the cross. It's a symbol of our paradoxical hope. That yes, while we might feel in our bodies the wasting away and the frittering away of all of our strength and energies. Yet by the same time, by faith and by the hope that the cross represents what? We are renewed and we are filled with life day by day. And that's why we hold the cross high. Because by it we understand everything else. And by it we do not lose heart. Paul was intimately familiar with adversity, perhaps and likely more than we will ever know. He openly admits the anxiety that he feels for all the churches. In chapter 11, that's what he says. I'll just read the verse 11, verse 28. He says, and apart from other things. So after listing, you know, being beaten, being left for dead, being shipwrecked, he ends that paragraph and he says, apart from other things, There's the daily pressures on me of my anxiety for all the churches. He feels this weight constantly on him. You know what Paul says? Despite how heavy and seemingly unrelenting all of these pains and all of these problems are. It was the gospel of the cross. That told him that nothing could compare with what awaited him in glory. Glory. 
no matter what he endured. Jesus' death and resurrection, that's what allowed Paul to not lose heart. Uh, lose heart. It's what instilled him with a hope beyond hope. And it gave him a confidence that didn't rely on what was seen, but what was, on, uh, what was unseen. This is what the gospel does. The gospel of the cross reorients our gaze from what we can see to what we cannot see. Despair and discouragement that often follows close on our heels whenever our focus is just on the visible, what's seen. And put yourself back in the shoes of Jesus' followers. At the moment of his death on the cross, what could they see? What was the only thing that they could understand in that moment? Death and defeat. It looked like their teacher, the one that they had spent several years with, was now being brutally mutilated. What abject despair that would fill them with. But as he says uh, afterward, the whole point of all of those conversations in the aftermath is to show them that, yes, while it looked, while the seen things looked like despair and defeat, what is the unseen thing that's happening? Jesus is putting death to death. Jesus is crushing the head of the serpent so that we might have life and have life eternally with him. It's a power. That's what this gospel is. You know, he talks about the power that fills us in our weakness. It's a power that believes that it's at work despite what it looks like. So despite what it looked like, the cross was not a scene of defeat, but a victory. And despite what it looked like, all of Paul's delays were not reason to reject his message. And despite what it looked like, all of the suffering and all of the sorrow that seemed to follow Paul wouldn't prevail. And yes, right now, despite what it looks like, all of the chaos and the commotion of our day will not prevail either. This is why Paul says in the next chapter, chapter 5, verse 7, that we live not by sight, but by faith. Because by faith... We are invited to trust not in what we see, but in what God's word says. To be completely transparent with you, there's been more than one occasion. This last year where I've struggled with this, and I'm sorry. Where I've caught myself focusing on the scene more than anything else. And it's led, I, just being frank with you, it's led to more than one battle with despair. I've always been one who seems to just dwell on things. And I can't seem to get them out of my mind. It's, a, it's to my own detriment, I know it. It's a weakness I know in myself. Words or thoughts or phrases. What I've learned is the more that I I dwell on what I see and what I hear, the easier it is for those little tendrils of depression to creep in. I know I'm susceptible to that. And some of the events of the past year plus have left me with a simmering depression that I've only recently become aware of. And there's been more than a few moments this past year where I felt like I was losing my nerve where all, all I seemed to see were, were empty pews or hear criticisms. And that wasn't true, of course. But when your focus is only on the scene, that becomes so much more easier to be the thing that you see. 
But you know what has kept me going? What has kept me from, from giving up? You know what's helped me to get back up whenever I've been down? Do you know what, who was with me during every setback, during every seeming defeat? It was always Jesus. Always. And sometimes, you know, sometimes Jesus spoke to me through Brother Matt Shively. Who constantly told me, focus on the blessings. More often than not, it was Jesus speaking through my wife. Who would hold me by my face. And speak words of encouragement right to me. But it was always Jesus. That's the reason we don't lose heart. Jesus is worth it. Even if your, your circumstances don't make a, a lick of sense, even if your, your trials and your troubles don't seem to be letting up anytime soon, even if you feel, as Paul here says, that he felt so utterly burdened beyond what he could ever bear that he thought about despairing of life itself, the gospel of the cross invites us to put our faith not in what we can see, but into what is unseen, into what God's word promises. Always. It's an open invitation. That's what the gospel is. To trust in what God's doing, despite what it looks like. That's what the cross does. It assures us that there is a God at work, even if we can't see it. And that's why we here in this life in 2024... We aren't without hope. As long as the God of hope is ruling and reigning, hope is not a far off reality. It is right here with us. What keeps us from losing heart? Or better yet, who keeps us from losing heart? It's always Jesus. And though we might, as Paul here says, We might feel crushed, but we're not yet destroyed. Though we might be confused and bewildered, we are not utterly given over to despair. And though we may be knocked down with Jesus, we are never knocked out. If I can encourage you with anything, let it be this. That Jesus, when he died and he rose again, He did so for you and your beating heart. That even right now as your heart beats with trepidation or trouble. He even still through his word and through his spirit is reminding you. That he died and rose again for precisely you. Don't lose heart church. Trust. Trust in Jesus. Let us pray.